0: Are we gonna get it now? Yeah. Are we gonna fight to it now? Yeah. Are we gonna die for our freedom? Yeah. Are we gonna cry for our freedom? Yeah. And then we gonna get our freedom. Yeah.
1: In March of 1968, protesters from the NAACP marched nonviolently across the 16th Street Viaduct, from the north side to the south side of Milwaukee for 200 evenings straight. The protest was a call for an open housing ordinance to ban discrimination in the selling and renting of housing. Giving minorities a fair chance to live in any neighborhood would provide a number of opportunities such as having access to better housing, jobs, and schooling. The nation's eyes were on Milwaukee throughout the daily protests. These marches contributed to the civil rights movement happening all around the country. Just a month later, a week after martin luther king jr's assassination congress passed the federal fair housing act finally the civil rights act of 1968 outlawed any discrimination based on race color religion sex or national origin in a cell or rental of a dwelling and while it took an assassination of a great civil rights leader it was nevertheless a win for minorities across the nation this was the solution to dissolve segregation once and for all. Or was it? Welcome to Authentic Pivots, a show about accomplished entrepreneurs and the cities they live in, Get ready to dive into a story to improve your mindset, strategy, and emotional health. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and relax. Enjoy today's show. When did you last step foot in a stadium? Which was the last hospital you visited? Have you ever wondered about the workforce that built it? Were they diversified? Were they local businesses? Unless you work in the real estate industry, you've probably never wondered about any of that. And if you have, then you'll be happy to know someone like Carla Cross. She's the CEO of Cross Management Services, a company that helps commercial real estate projects define and meet their diversity and inclusion goals. Over the last 20 years, Carla has worked on big-name projects such as the Pfizer Forum, Lambeau Field, Harley-Davidson Museum, Marquette University, and Frederick Hospital. Carla is African-American. She raised her children as a single mother and built a business that fills a crucial racial gap in Milwaukee. If anyone can relate to Standing Against the Odds, it's Carla. So I think what fascinated me the most, which I am really thankful I have you as a guest, is because your business model is so unique and so niched. Where it's just, uh, from what I know, there's only two players uh, in that market as far as diversity and inclusion with development. Uh, yeah. And rumor has it that you're very good friends with your competitor. But <laughs> <laughs> well, we get along and we yeah. work on
2: projects together. Yeah. So. Right. You know, it's all it all should be a uh, uh, because the goal is to help um, diverse firms grow yeah. and build relationship with those decision makers, either on development projects or in construction projects. Yeah. And if we're successful in doing that, eventually, no one would necessarily need our services. So. Right. So in a way, but we are we do it as a for profit and a non profit. So yeah. uh, so in a way we both have that same mission mm-hmm. of making sure we're uh, helping other diverse firms grow.
1: Could you provide like a little bit more of context why a business like yours exists in Milwaukee?
0: <laughs> I mean that's a lot of questions. So
2: um, so from the city side or the government side. So if a government entity either sells land or creates some sort of financing, provides the financing to a development project, then the city of Milwaukee is setting goals. And in the city it's called human resource. Uh, it's a human resource agreement, okay, which requires small business and, uh, and it has a workforce goal, residence preference program. So many developers and contractors that do get money from the city then hire somebody to help manage that piece because that is not an expertise they hold right so and then there's another avenue of companies corporations that have set supply and workforce goal as part of their mission one of the things that they want to do uh, uh, sort of that um, within their company they want to make sure that they are using diverse suppliers or contractors that are working on their projects okay.
1: on a level from 1 through 10 like on a scale in Milwaukee How would you measure how included and how diverse uh, development projects are in just nature in general?
2: It's probably still only at three. Because there are all these other private projects that people do where diverse firms are not even invited to bid. The companies don't have any kind of inclusion program. Um, they don't necessarily think about it as a goal that they want to put in place. They're not tied into you know, understanding the um, sort of discrepancies and the problems in, uh, with sort of what causes segregation, what causes a yeah. causes difference in the income gap. That is not something that they even think about or have a concern about, or even think about putting a program to yeah. be a part of the solution. Right.
1: The Milwaukee metropolitan area is considered to be the most black-white segregated area in the entire U.S. Let me quantify and paint a better picture for you. Segregation is usually measured using a black-white dissimilarity index. A value of 100 means that there is complete segregation. A value of 0 means that there is complete integration. Full integration would mean that every neighborhood would have the same racial percentage ratios as a whole. For example, if Milwaukee consists of 50% whites and 35% blacks, then full integration between blacks and whites would mean that any given neighborhood you'd step in would consist of the same racial percentages. 50% would be white and 35% would be black residents. The Milwaukee Metro Area Segregation Index towers over every region in the nation at 79.8, according to the Brookings Institution. That means that at least three out of four black residents in the metro region would need to relocate to be fully integrated into neighborhoods with whites. Three out of four.
0: So, like, growing up, I spent a lot of time on the north side, but like you, man, I wasn't going out to eat, man. It's like, the thing we afforded was like, maybe we go to Mayfair, and maybe get something from the food court. Yeah. But that was like on special occasions. But by the time I got like, <clears throat> I mean, I was like 14 or 15 when I went to Hamilton. So I saw going north side. So literally, I know my way on the north side according to where my friend's house were <laughs> and the buses that i used to take
3: you know milwaukee's real segregated right mm-hmm. always when i was growing up always in school hey it's like the most segregated
0: city in my
3: right number
0: right? one number two yep. Yeah.
3: so i'm on the north side but it was so segregated that number one there were really no black people on the south side
0: right none right Mm-hmm. I know that It
3: was even more segregated That there were no Puerto Ricans On the south side
0: There are on the east side Puerto Ricans used to be
3: On the east side Yep Right And any Latino population Or Hispanic population Was Mexican South side On the south side And and that was it Across the bridge Yeah Pretty much And nowadays It's like everybody man You got a a melting pot Of like That's why Like the south side To me Is like You know Very diverse It's diverse now Yeah. You know Everybody's over there man There's so many different Like it's not just Puerto Ricans and Mexicans over there either, too, man. You got Dominicans and Haitians and yeah. Filipino, and um, the South Side was foreign to me growing up on the North Side, like, right? You know, and coming up in the neighborhood, it was just like you know, you didn't go to the South Side unless it was for, you know, not good things. <laughs> you know, we, just, we stayed on our side of town, and right. y'all stayed on y'all side of town.
0: Well, man, you're looking at a dude who used to bus every day, yeah. went to school on the north side, lived on the south side. So I was like, it's so funny because I, I, I could tell both sides were scared of each other. Because <laughs> they didn't understand each other, though, right? Like, I've
1: read that you have family down south, but I don't know if you're from down south or you grew up here, but just... Influenced by I, family? I grew up
2: in both places. I was born here in Milwaukee. My father migrated to Milwaukee from Kosciuszko, Mississippi, and I think about sometime in the 40s originally. Okay. Uh, so uh, I was the first child that was born here. I have old, two older sisters that were both born in Mississippi. Okay. And then it's well, there's eight children in our family. So the oldest two and the youngest two were born in Mississippi. The middle four were born in Milwaukee. So that was <laughs> how it sort of worked out. So my dad worked for Harness Figure, which is now Komatsu Mining Company. Okay. Yep. And when he, he would get laid off, we would move back to Mississippi, and he would farm oh. on, on the farm. So he retained his land when he migrated to Milwaukee. Uh-huh. Yeah. So then I was there for second through sixth grade in Mississippi. Then we came back to Milwaukee, and I went to middle school. So Wells Junior High School, which is now the Rescue Mission, and then West Division, my freshman year at West Division, which was now the School of the Arts. And then we moved back to Mississippi again. And so I ended up graduating from high school in Mississippi. And then I came back to go to college at UWM.
1: Hey, everybody, this is Luis from Authentic Pivots. I just wanted to remind you that today's episode is also available in video format. And yes, we shot legit footage of my conversations with people, along with key aspects of the city. You can check out the video episode at AuthenticPivots.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up to our list. Otherwise, you'll miss out on Authentic Pivots happenings, free resources, and deals that I've personally worked out just for you. And without further ado, let's get back to the show. From 1916 to 1970, more than six million African-Americans migrated from Southern states to the North Midwest and West because of heavy segregation laws, usually referred to as Jim Crow laws. This time period is also known as the Great Migration. During the early years of this period, factory wages in the urban north were typically three times more than what blacks could expect to make working the land in the rural south. Migrating to the north by any means was a no-brainer. It was common for blacks to form a little city within a city due to racially divided neighborhoods. For Milwaukee, it was a section of the north side referred to as the inner core. The inner core was considered the square mile bordered by third and 12th streets between Juneau Avenue and North Avenue. This neighborhood was easy to neglect for decades. The higher rates of infant mortality, welfare dependency, criminal convictions along with lower rates of educational attainment and employment weren't really felt by most in the city during the 40s and 50s european immigrants prospered and left houses in poor conditions as in most cities black migrants from the south and minorities in general often settled into these unfit living places due to housing discrimination the black population in milwaukee grew from roughly 13,000 to approximately 100,000 from 1945 to 1970. That's over a 700% increase within a 25 year span. As the black population grew, African-Americans moved into neighborhoods north and west from the inner core, which up to that point were considered German neighborhoods. As a result, white flight occurred, a term used to describe when a large number of white people Move out of neighborhoods because minorities move in. Visit Milwaukee's North Side today, and you'll quickly notice that not much has changed. What What are some challenges that you've come across in twofold? Uh, one, as a minority, and then second, as a just a woman.
2: I don't know if I can look at the challenges as one of the other. Okay. And I guess and even fine. for me, and some of it is, and it may have been there, and maybe I just overlooked it. Cause sometimes I'll say, "Is so." When I grew up in Mississippi, it was everything was still was really segregated. You know, they had the colored toilets and the colored water fountains, and yeah. so I didn't necessarily. Find it as much, mainly because I've always worked with very good people that were really willing to provide information. Okay. So, so in that way, I've been fortunate, and um, you know, you're used to being in a room where you're the only one. It's getting to the point where there are more than just me yeah. in the room. There's more African American men, African American females, Hispanic males, yeah. um, and then there's the groups of us that try to work together and help each other out. Yeah. So.
0: You know, and that's funny (laughs) that you say that because I,
1: I mean, I'm asking a question because I know I, in my experience, I was in the tech industry. I started in the tech industry about 11 years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was used to, from all the companies I worked in, I was used to being the only minority Mm -hmm.
0: and sometimes the darkest person
1: (laughs) in the room and I'm not even that dark, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) But um, as time has passed by, I think just in the last maybe handful of years i'm starting to see more minorities in different companies or even like developers application developers uh, specifically and i would say that maybe at the beginning i i could tell that they treated me a little bit differently but in all honesty i uh as soon as i made friends good friends it's almost i stopped noticing it, and I even, it's almost as, the less I paid attention to it, the less anyone else did too. Right. And mm-hmm. it's just like, I just fit in the room, mm-hmm. I just belong there. Uh, so I think I got really good at finding the common ground, and I feel like maybe what you're saying is is very similar is that because you had, a, you developed a lot of friendships and relationships, maybe you didn't bump into as many challenges, or if you did, you were just oblivious to it, as right. I probably was too, right. <laughs> at some point. <laughs> right. the 1930s a government agency drew maps to categorize neighborhoods into high and low risk investments these maps are nowadays known as redlining maps a redlined area meant that the area was high risk for any kind of investment neighborhoods were supposed to be redlined for environment-based reasons like polluted waterways old housing stocks lack of modern sewage etc Reggie Jackson from the Black Holocaust Museum, points out that a Milwaukee redlining map from 1938 had three areas redlined because of the people who lived there. One area was redlined because of the infiltration of Mexicans. Another area was redlined because of Negro slum residents and lower-type Jews. It was nearly impossible to get insurance and mortgages in redlined neighborhoods, which means that people who live there would never become homeowners. They would forever stay renters. Close to 100% of Milwaukee's black population lived in redlined areas. Redlining was finally outlawed in the 70s, but the redlining maps from the 1930s show an eerie resemblance to modern-day impoverished neighborhoods consisting of nearly all minorities.
0: What would you say is unique about
1: Milwaukee's vibe? That, or when you're when you're on the road and you miss about
4: Milwaukee, or you're just kind of like, this (laughs) this is only. This is about Milwaukee. Oh man! I mean, I miss my family. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I have a love-hate situation with this city. Yeah. um, It's really segregated. It's really racist. Yeah. um, And even on the liberal side, it's like, you know, it's racist in in a different way. Uh where like you're not included in the conversation or you're not like uh, you're not a part of the opportunities that are like you're not you know in the forefront where if you go to other cities like there's a lot more established legacy there for Mm -hmm. like the minority communities like Brooklyn, Oakland, um, Atlanta like there's communities that have been there forever you know and they have their established kind of um, businesses and, and middle class like yeah We've really struggled as a, as a city to kind of be fair um, and have that opportunity. I, I was at a, a tech event where like uh, they were announcing the whole tech initiative, and there was like other goals, and other goals were like make sure uh, D and I and women were included into the tech conversation. Yeah, and I was like, that that's that's not the case. Like we are the forefront of that conversation. There's yeah. too much imbalance where we have to be the catalyst of change. Yeah. And if we're not the catalyst of change, we're going to end up in the same place where we were 20, 30 years ago, where, um, you know, uh, communities of color are kind of, uh, you know, outside of that equation. Yeah.
2: Sometimes I'll talk to my kids to see if they're experiencing any kind of, um, the same kind of thing. that My oldest son is thirty five. For, he works for GE Healthcare. Okay. So my kids went to school in the North Shore. So they went to Indian Hill, Mapledale, Nicolet. Okay. Yeah. And we could stay in the city of Milwaukee because of Chapter 220, because otherwise we would have left. Cause, okay. um And although Milwaukee Public Schools have some good schools, right. it's like because I was a single mother, it was like too much work to figure out which was a good school, and I couldn't be up there all the time. It's
4: been... More than 10 years, what's your reaction to the decision filed today?
3: My reaction is that it's a good decision, it's well-written, and I think that it um, will do the job of at least uh, letting um, the school board know and the administration know what the rest of us in Milwaukee have known all the while, that the school board is segregated and it operates a black school system and a white school system, and that's uh, unconstitutional.
4: Do you think a good plan Lloyd can Barbie. come out of this uh Do you, this,
1: you know who that is? Negotiation? Probably not. He's the man who filed a federal lawsuit against the Board of School Directors for the city of Milwaukee in 1965. He argued that MPS's neighborhood school policies intensified school segregation. After 11 years of litigation, federal judge John Reynolds finally ruled that segregation existed in Milwaukee Public Schools and was intentionally created and maintained by the Board of MPS school directors. A few months later, The chapter 220 law was passed. This program permitted students to transfer to schools in other districts within the Milwaukee area to promote cultural and racial integration in education. The number of students in chapter 220 slowly declined over the last two decades. Suburban districts have preferred to accept inner-city students through another program named open enrollment, which usually offers schools a better financial deal. However, This creates a challenge for minority students since the program fails to provide transportation, which Chapter 220 did. A third option inner-city students have to access better educational resources is through school choice programs. The state will give a voucher for a certain dollar amount to students who'd like to attend private schools. This provides a fair choice for parents to choose their children's schools, given they meet certain requirements. Chapter 220 was eliminated in 2015. Sadly, the open enrollment and school choice programs have no specific racial integration goals, as Chapter 220 did. Research has shown that schools are just as segregated today as they were in the 70s. For example, today only 11% of MPS students are white. Think about that. About 90% of students attending Milwaukee Public Schools are minorities which usually come from lower-income families. Let's not even get started on the high school graduation rates between white and black students. In 2015, Wisconsin's overall public high school graduation rate was 88.4%, the sixth highest in the nation. Bravo! Except that the high school graduation rate for African American students in MPS was 54.7% making it the largest gap between whites and blacks in the entire nation that year. Things have improved over the years, but we're still nowhere near to comparable graduation rates or fully integrated schools. What advice would you give uh, single mothers who are building a business or want to build business?
2: have the business fit within your lifestyle so you can, so it, you know, so it can work. So with me being able to have the business in the house, you know, and before we like moved into an office because I did have the duplex, then I could, it was easy for me to go downstairs and work from midnight to two if I needed to work. Right. So then I could like come home, pick the kids up, have dinner and then go back to work. Yeah. So that was, so you have to, to me, it's, it's how do you have the business Work so you still can provide as much for your children and support. And there's times when like I miss you know the three on three basketball games that I used to have for little kids at the Bradley Center. Mm -hmm. So Tyler had a team and they won and I was not there. I was (laughs) at an open house. So that's one thing you know. So I do try to at least um, still be involved in everything they did at school. So their basketball games, football games. and try to get them involved as as much as possible. So even when they were going to Nicolet, there was really quite a few people that lived in Sherman Park, kids went to Nicolet. So, you know, we would take turns picking the kids up if the bus wouldn't bring them back late at night because they were playing football or basketball practice or things like that.
1: Imagine growing up poor. Your dream is to live in a nicer neighborhood. Time goes by and you finally make enough money to move out of the hood and rent yourself a nice little apartment in a suburb. You have a clean record, you're financially stable, but when you apply, you get rejected over and over again because it's illegal to rent to people with your skin color there. You'd be hopelessly trapped living in the hood with no way to get out, no matter how much you work for it. If you're white, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. If you're a minority, you most likely do. The darker your complexion, the more you can probably relate. Denying housing in suburb areas to anyone who wasn't white wasn't only legal, it was even recommended by the U.S. government. Zoning laws were used to segregate communities. Many of the homes in Milwaukee's suburban communities had racial restrictive covenants These became popular in the 1930s. Actually, to be more specific, 16 out of Milwaukee's 18 suburbs had racial restrictive covenants. While each covenant was worded differently, they all pretty much used a variation of the following verbiage. This property can be occupied by people other than the white race. Many of these covenants composed in the 30s, 40s, and 50s were extended well into the 2000s. What about white people well after world war ii a lot of veterans had nowhere to live the government offered real estate developers financial incentives to build new homes in suburbs and also underwrote single-family home mortgages for veterans so let me put that into perspective the u.s government incentivized white people and middle-class citizens to move into brand new suburban homes while denying all minorities any kind of chance to live in better neighborhoods even if they could afford it. Pretty messed up right?
3: When I went to Riverside in the 90s early 90s there were race riots like it was a funny time dude like um like there were skinheads in Milwaukee you know what I'm saying like actual skinheads um, and then, at Riverside, I remember this other gang of skinheads formed at Riverside, but they were called Brew City Skinheads. And they're, they look like all the other skinheads, except they got black dudes in their ranks. What and, and Puerto Rican dudes in their ranks. And they, in my opinion, they exist to get into fights with racist skinheads. So they're like, we're non-racists, skinheads.
0: Oh, really? You know what
3: I'm saying? But that wasn't the race riots at Riverside. The race riots were the blacks and the Puerto Ricans Mm -hmm. when I was at Riverside. Right. It was, man, it was uh, was a trip, dude. It was was a crazy time. That
4: that
0: was in the 90s? 90. 90? 90, 91, 92. 90, 99. 99. So, like in my era which is not even like 10 years later it was all everyone was like much more like it was by like the neighborhood you were from Mm -hmm. like you had the two Wands, you had the lks you had uh the gds you had the vice lords like you had the cobras that were on lincoln like so so
3: you're hitting on something that's happening now that with that transition like back then um it was still all them it was and it was gangs. you know what i mean it was like like the whole north side of town was folks you know yeah, what i'm saying was, like uh, yeah you know and the whole south side of town had their hat the other way mps yeah yeah. you know yeah. and then you had little pockets of uh you know peeps vice lords here on key for mm-hmm. two fours on hampton or in whatever but man you know um but then like toward when you're going to school like um oh man that structure just started to break down like now like you don't have gangs no
0: more. not, no no more yeah that's what i'm saying
3: and that block right there could be at war with the next block you know what i'm saying like and yeah i feel like the way the young cats say it's all about making money you know it's all about money
4: you know if you're just because i enjoy the diversity it's weird being growing up mixed in milwaukee yeah because sometimes it's hard I always thought I looked Latino. Yeah, and I really don't. (laughs) (laughs) I look Asian, right? Uh, I'm more Latino than anything, but I'm my mom. So I'm like, you know, I'm like Mexican to the bone. Uh, But I I realized, I guess, I didn't look Latino in in my like late twenties. Like, didn't do in your late twenties? Yeah. Yeah. I if I grow a mustache out, then it comes out. Yeah. um,
0: in your defense, there's there's some Latinos that they look look very yeah, Asian. Yeah, yeah, yeah Latinos, yeah, yeah, they look Asian. Um,
4: you know, like, so it was really hard for me to like completely connect with my Latino culture. Yeah. So I always tried to find people that were mixed growing up. Yeah. And like I just found a lot of people on the east side. So that's cool.
1: So what was the core really like? Well, the inner core, also referred to as Milwaukee's Bronzeville, although poor, was a self-sustaining, tightly knit community. Walnut Street had all kinds of African American businesses like hotels, restaurants, taverns, barbershops, and markets, along with offices of lawyers and physicians. The neighborhood was renowned for its nightlife scene that attracted all races. Bronzeville hosted and featured nationally known artists like Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, and Billie Holiday. Oh, and if you wanted to worship, you had a fair share of churches to choose from. The inner core was no joke. They even had their own unofficial mayor. African Americans built a legit, vibrant neighborhood with the crumbs that Milwaukee gave them. So what happened to it all? Well... In the 1960s, about 8,000 houses and numerous businesses were annihilated in the name of urban renewal. The construction of highway I-43 destroyed family homes and left people without a proper place to live. And if that wasn't messed up enough, houses were destroyed for roads that were never even built. That's next level messed up. Do you feel like uh, Milwaukee has improved with time? Uh, and if so, like in what ways are you seeing it changed?
2: Well, it is improving in time with the fact that they are more uh, diverse developers in this day and age with the ACRE program. Yeah. There, there are quite a bit. But also not only just doing development, but just who are in charge of some of the business improvement districts and also working at banks and finances. So it's really a diverse group. Uh, you know, of people that are working in um, industries that can have that sort of touch development or where you can have an impact on neighborhoods and communities. Right. So that is, um, so that's, I think that's important.
1: Is this uh, the diversity and inclusion? Is this limited? Uh, Obviously you specialize in development, but have you seen this in other industries? And if so, which ones are like the top two that come to mind immediately?
2: Well, the originally the top ones were in the automotive industry.
1: Okay, yeah. So, right, uh, so Johnson Controls, right. which you
2: don't think about, they sell, they have a lot of divisions that work with, within the automotive industry. So yeah. those were the ones, and then any that have consumer products, like Procter & Gamble and some of those companies that are selling to the public. Because again, they want, um, As many people as possible to be in a position to buy their product and if and if a whole uh, segment of the population is not working does not have income cannot afford a gm car right then you know or a toyota or whatever because you know because many of these companies work with all the different uh, automotive companies then that is hurting their bottom line in the future and their ability to grow
1: Black people are lazy and none of them like to work. Have you heard that before? That seems to be the attitude towards African-Americans in Milwaukee. Perhaps it's because the unemployment rate for blacks in Milwaukee is one of the highest in the nation. But was that always the case? Absolutely not. On the contrary, African-Americans moved here because of work opportunities. If you remember from our first episode of the season, Milwaukee was once considered the machine shop of the world. Once upon a time, this city was the best place for African American laborers. In the 1970 census, 43% of black Milwaukeeans were industrial laborers. Just a year before, Milwaukee had the second highest median household income in the entire nation, with manufacturing jobs representing 36% of the job base. Since 1963, the city has lost over 90,000 manufacturing jobs. Many of those family-supporting jobs were moved to the suburbs. So why didn't blacks and other minorities keep their jobs? Doesn't Milwaukee have public transportation? Milwaukee does in fact have a decent public transportation system throughout the city. Actually, if you're like me, you probably learned your way around the city by riding the bus to school and work as a teenager but city buses don't make it into the suburbs where all the better paying jobs are found and of course it's no surprise that suburb communities have been extremely resistant for public transportation to have access to their side of town this is simply another form of restricting suburb access to anyone from the city with low income and let's face it the majority of those people are minorities can you see the catch-22 here How can inner-city minorities who make less money get better-paying jobs found in suburbs if they can't afford transportation? How can minorities become homeowners outside of neglected neighborhoods without access to the opportunities with better pay? How can they possibly improve their living conditions if they physically can't get to better-paying jobs? As segregated as Milwaukee is, some people have found ways of building a career or a profitable business while making a difference in their communities.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting that you said about like you know now that you're seeing these opportunities. Like, Milwaukee's always had this issue as diversity is a checkbox. You know, like, oh yeah, we got a couple. Of- Black and brown folks here. Let's check that off. That's great. You know, we'll put it in the video. It'll be awesome yeah. uh, to talk about. <laughs> right. Instead of like it being like a true force, you know, like this is a true economic force. Like the Latino and African American communities are massive amounts of uh, of economic power behind them, mm-hmm. but they don't. They're not treated that way. You know?
1: Recently, like your one of your previous jobs was to do something similar for minorities, right? To kind of
0: usher them into technology and programming and stuff?
4: Yeah, so there's a program here called IC Stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually, Homeboys actually helped uh, get it off the ground oh, back okay. in 1999. And so a friend of mine, I had left, I was working um, in government in DC, and, uh, a friend of mine uh, invited me to come back uh, to work and help launch, M- not just Milwaukee, but to launch it across the country. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, yeah, ICE Stars has been around for I think two years already. Yeah, uh, they've graduated a lot of folks, and a lot of people got jobs. For them, so it's great. Right.
0: What are you trying to do exactly? I don't know. I don't know. So tell me, tell me more of the details of that project. Um, when the deal took how long to?
3: And I've been working on this deal since two thousand thirteen. Through four development directors at Harlan Housing that we partnered with. Okay. Um, this school has been boarded up for 12 to 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a... Where is it at? It's on 37th and Galena. Yeah. It's going to be an adaptive reuse of a historical building. We're going to stick like $12 million into that school and make it into 49 units of senior living. Okay. It's going to be a beautiful, beautiful facility for... Um, low to moderate income seniors to go and pay no more than a third of whatever their monthly income is for rent. Mm -hmm. So you got seniors that are making $1,200 a month on social security and that's all they get. Yeah. You know, so they would be, you know, 400 bucks a month would be the max that they'd be able to be charged for rent. Brand Mm -hmm. new, you know, whatever. We're doing studios, ones, twos.
0: Okay. And, The project's already started, it's in motion already? Or it's about to get in motion?
3: The project has been in motion, but the construction is not in motion. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Like, The construction is not gonna start um, until February. Until February, yeah. Okay.
1: In addition to the ACRE program, what what would you say for uh, a minority who wants to get into development? What would you say is a mindset That you see in developers across the board, and probably even more particularly in minorities.
2: Well, I guess for all developers are risk takers. Yeah. So, so you have to be (laughs) able to take. (laughs) You have to be able to take risks. Um, uh, To me, you also have to be really good at trying to determine. You know, like what is your level of risk. And how much you can take, but also really understanding the development, the deal, the numbers, how it all comes together. So look at that. So real estate has always been a good way of investing or increasing your wealth using that. And so over time, people, you know, African Americans people have done that. They bought a duplex, then they buy another duplex, and then they buy a four-unit, and then they six, and then pretty soon they got 50 units, so or more.
1: In 1969, the newly elected president, Richard Nixon, appointed George Romney as Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Yes, I'm talking about Mitt Romney, the 47% guy's dad. As a civil rights supporter, George Romney proposed an open housing plan, nicknamed Open Communities. The plan would reinforce fair housing for blacks and minorities, all the like. Non-compliant cities or towns would have their federal funds withheld. When the proposition went public, whites across the nation complained to the Nixon administration. Nixon quickly asked the new policy. Here's what he said. This country is not ready at this time for either forcibly integrated housing or forcibly integrated education. the president was appeasing Southern white Democrats along with his personal beliefs regarding racial equality. As a result, the Federal Fair Housing Act, which was cemented into the law, had zero accountability. On paper, it was illegal to discriminate against race, color, religion, sex, or national origin when selling or renting a place to live. But nothing really changed. Well, I guess here's more of a personal question mm-hmm. in in your business and even just in development like ha, can you tell us like uh, maybe describe a low moment because I'm assuming with risk there's always like this uneasiness and there's probably ups and down mm-hmm. uh, as in with any businesses right. not just sure. development but would you describe like a low moment and then kind of like what I find in most entrepreneurs that stay in the game, they're just resilient. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess I'm trying to extract that from you okay. right now. So
2: I guess our low uh, means of partners was trying to do a development on 5th and Vine Street. So we had an option from the city to buy the property. We are going to try to do an office building and um, and then some condos on top and then another sort of live work building. Yeah. Um, and it was really going to be four buildings. So I was really in So the recession happened in 2008. So maybe we started this in 2006, 2007, and then the recession happened. So we did have, like, approved uh, sort of letters from banks that they would finance the deal if we got so much rented or tenants and stuff like that. Then we're in a problem of trying to get tenants. We're trying to get WIDA to move into our, our building so then we can move. But then it didn't happen, and then the recession happened, and the bottom fell out. So we were probably out like $200,000 just in the planning because oh, we had to have yeah. architects designs, all of that. Right. So, and then we had uh, sort of some bank funds that we had like borrow for that. So all that had to be paid back yeah. or, you know, some people walk away, we didn't. So, <laughs> you know, you could file bankruptcy or whatever, but we, we didn't. And so even for me, and so because I'm in the development business, so we weren't doing development, there was not much development happening so for my consulting business and sales were going down too, so I went from eight people to just me full time and one part time person. Okay,
0: yes. Yeah.
2: Uh, so that you know, so my business contracted. I moved my business to my house. Oh. Okay, uh, yeah. So you know, so I wasn't paying rent and right. stuff like that. Yeah. And um, and then I was like using uh, money, either my savings, my 401k, my cash value, my insurance policy. Uh, wow, all of that to, all in, huh? right so i was really all in to pay off all the debts yeah, that we had and continue to go yeah. but luckily i had all that yeah. if i didn't have the 401k if i didn't have the cash value of my insurance policies or that i probably would have had to file bankruptcy or something yeah. but i didn't and so now Everything is, you know, my business is growing, and I still have, well, it's three of us that are full-time, two part-time yeah. workers. We moved to an office space. Yeah. You know, so one good thing is I had good credit, so if I wanted to borrow money, <laughs> <laughs> so the thing is, that's what you do when yeah. things go, but luckily, I had that, and I did have money, but it, you know, it was enough to sustain me, yeah. and so I was able to pay people back, so I'm back to where...
4: Well, you know, good.
2: so that's so that's sort of the bad thing that can happen. Yeah. But the thing is, you're in a position where you can you have the money or the money set aside that you can always cover
1: in, in that case. Like it was sounds like you had like a lot of confidence in, or not, maybe not even. I don't know if those confidence <laughs> or not, but you were Oh, I I would say probably tenacious or determined, like, I cannot file for bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. I'm going to grow this at all costs.
2: Right. Or I'm going to just, yeah, I'm not going to file. I'm just going to make it work at all costs or feel right. (laughs) And so, and I could. So.
1: That's the sound of 14 gunshots.
2: 1246, 1246 shots, fire shots, fire officer involved. God, started beating me started beating me got my batting.
1: 14 me the is head the head number head of bullets shot. police officer Christopher Manny shot into Dantre Hamilton on April 30th, 2014.
2: Head with my old batting. shots fired
1: uh, Starbucks Dantre was taking a nap at Red Arrow Park located in downtown Milwaukee when the officer helped him up and started patting him down without reasonable suspicion uh, give
2: me medical too. he's gonna need medical shots. Oh, after
1: Dantre resisted, The officer struck him with his baton repeatedly until Dontre managed to take the baton away and hit him back with it. Then the police officer shot and killed Dontre with 14 bullets.
2: Multiple times to the chest.
1: Blackmail, he's about 20. So what happened to police officer Christopher Manny? Well, he was fired from the force and was also granted duty disability. He faced no criminal charges. And after a lengthy trial, John Trey Hamilton's family finally received a $2.3 million settlement three years after his death. The relationship between African Americans and the police has never been good. The U.S. incarcerates more people than any nation in the world, and over a third of those prisoners are black. Yet African Americans only represent about 13% of the U.S. population. Let's zero in more on some disheartening facts, shall we? Wisconsin's prison population has more than tripled since 1990 in the name of the war against drugs. A 2013 study conducted by the Employment and Training Institute at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee found that Wisconsin has the highest incarceration rate in the U.S. for black men and double the national average. It also found that Wisconsin's rate of incarceration of black men is one in eight, which is 10 times higher than the rate for white men, which is one in 81. And lastly, over half of black men in their thirties and early forties from Milwaukee County have been incarcerated. That means that if you saw two black men walking down the street, one of them most likely have been to jail or prison. Did Milwaukee inherit more black criminals than any other city in the U.S.? Of course not. Most African Americans who are incarcerated come from and return to the poorest neighborhoods of Milwaukee. Where there is poverty, there will always be a higher rate of sickness, crime, and desperation. Even more so when a city strips away economic rights, such as decent education, public transportation, and job opportunities. For the better half of the last decade, the world has become more aware of the staggering rate at which cops have been more than heavy handed toward blacks and other minorities in the US. As a result, the Black Lives Matter movement gained heavy traction with its public demonstrations and protests regarding police killing unarmed black men back in 2013. More recently, The movement expanded worldwide after a circulating video showed Minneapolis police officer Derek Chavon murdering George Floyd. The police officer knelt on Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes while Floyd pleaded for his life. How sad is it that 52 years ago, Milwaukee protested for 200 nights straight just to get fair housing for blacks and other minorities. Today, in 2020, Milwaukee is protesting again for black lives to matter enough to simply keep alive for an emerging business owner what would your advice be to them Um, any words of wisdom that you would give someone who's in the process of building a business or just starting out what would you say is key for them to in like actually build a successful business or even uh, stand the test of time right. in business because it's volatile?
2: Um well one to me your business and going to work should not seem like a job. Okay. It's just, it should seem like a career. So it should be something you love and you like to do. Yeah. And you just get paid for doing it. So to me that's the first thing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so uh, but the other thing is one thing I I mean, I planned for growth, but I didn't necessarily plan for my business or try to figure out early on how to grow it to be like a billion-dollar company. And so the one thing to think about is how big do you want your company to go and how big, and then how do you make it go there? So in the future for my company to get that big, it's probably going to have to be through mergers and acquisitions or something like that. To really grow up really big if you want to have, you know, because even I was looking at the story of Amazon. How did he determine to grow it and what were the pieces he needed to bring it in? Or Microsoft. How do you grow a company to be that big? Um, And uh, just the technology and then just the thought process of, you know, just planning for that. So that was the one thing you have to do. And really just have belief in yourself that you can accomplish uh, different things. Sometimes you have to listen and you can hear no, but you can decide, uh, figure out a way around no. Yeah. You know, and how do you make something work for you? Some things are, you know, like no because you will fall in the you know? stop. <laughs> and others is, no, you know, like stop and then go around. Yeah. <laughs> as opposed to stop and then retreat. So you have to. Uh, you have to always figure out a solution to a problem. So even as an entrepreneur, nothing should ever be a problem that could stop you. It just may mean you have to go a different way. But you, also, you should always be thinking about how to solve a problem, how to solve some issues. Nothing should be, you know, because even I tell my staff, if there's a problem, you need to come to me with a solution. Don't just tell me what the problem is, which means you need to think about it. Right. And you need to think about how to fix it. So, yeah. um, because it helps you grow if you can do that. Yeah. Um, so that's what I, I would tell them. Really think about and plan and spend some time on how big you want your company to go and where do you need to be, that whole strategic planning. Uh, make sure you put that in place.
1: The dark side of Milwaukee is filled with prejudice, unfairness, and racism sprinkled throughout history. Making it as a black person in this city doesn't mean creating a business with hundreds of employees. Nor does it mean becoming a millionaire and traveling the world. No. Making it here as an African-American means working a steady job that you can actually get to. It means having reliable transportation a decent education it means moving into a nicer neighborhood without discrimination will there be a day where basic civil rights and dare i say economic rights of minorities are enforced can this city untangle the intentional knots of division and oppression white milwaukee created over the last century or is milwaukee hopeless and doomed to be the nation's steady heavyweight champion in segregation I don't pretend to know, only God knows the future. As long as we have good people actively working on making change that matters here, the city has a fighting chance. I reckon it will take more time and effort than it should, but it's worth every drop of blood, sweat, and tears. Until then, you can bet that any African American who prospers in this city has a different kind of grit. They've broken the chains of psychological slavery. They've beat a system built to oppress them. They possess the kind of grit that makes them a surviving warrior. After all, not everyone makes it out alive in this concrete jungle. you've just listened to an episode of Authentic Pivots. If you enjoyed today's show, do us a favor and leave us a review in iTunes. We'd appreciate it a ton. If you have any questions regarding the show itself or just in general, feel free to send me an email at luis at authenticpivots.com. Take care and I'll catch you in the next episode.